When is this thing over, man? When is impossible to say, but if we look at the history of money printing, they all end the same way. These fiat currencies hyperinflate. And it's, it's, again, it's obvious. If you owned a money printing machine in your home, basically all of us would hit print on that machine until that thing was blowing smoke and sparks and broke. The same thing happens at the central banking level. They just print money until the currency collapses, right? Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Robert Breedlove, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm good, Will. How are you? Life is good. Life is good. Let's get straight into this. Little anecdote. Okay, so I discovered you in a search to try and understand what the hell is going on in the crypto space in maybe 2019. I don't know if it was 2019 or 2020. I don't remember. Whenever it was the beginnings of stuff going on your channel. There wasn't a whole lot. Didn't know who you were, saw something, thought this is cool. I should come back to this. Saved it. You eventually put out the Sailor strategy or the Sailor, the Sailor series, excuse me, sorry. And then I was like, this is the dude I got. I went back, checked, and did my whole route. So for the people who don't know who you are and haven't done such a deep dive as me, why don't you tell everybody who you are? My name is Robert Breedlove. I Tennessee native. I've got an accounting and finance background, and I started to fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole in late 16, early 2017. Initially started just by tweeting, basically. And of course, I was reading a lot about it. And then I started writing about what I was learning along the way. And then I was being invited on podcasts to talk about what I had written. 
my appearances on podcasts had become popular. And I was getting a lot of feedback from people like, we want to hear you talk more. We want to read more of your writing. Like I'm an introvert by nature, so none of this comes naturally to me. I was really pressured by my audience basically to start putting my thoughts on video and audio. And so when you discovered me, which was pre-Sailor Series, it was really some of that. One of my fans had reached out and he's like, look, dude, you just need to do this on video. I'll do all the work for free. You just press record and I'll put it up there. And so that's what I started doing. The next natural step was to just start a podcast. And I got very lucky because as soon as I started thinking about starting a podcast, I got a DM from this guy named Michael Saylor. Had no idea who he was. He's like, thanks for your work. We think it's brilliant. We just bought some Bitcoin. And he, he linked to an article that they bought. I think they bought 250 million with the initial tranche. And I see this DM come through. I'm like, who is this fucking scammer? I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You bought 250. I clicked it and looked. I was like, oh, wow, this is real. And so I was just like, hey, I'm you know thinking about starting this podcast and thinking about who a good first guest would be. And you seem like a great fit. So why don't you come on? I had no idea he is like the most eloquent man on planet earth. He's the first guest on my podcast for the first nine episodes. I take no credit for the success of that series, but it was crazily successful. The guy can basically interview himself. I just pressed record and the podcast became very popular out of the gate. And now we are 400 episodes in. It's called the What is Money Show. So we use that as a philosophical guiding light turns out to be a very complicated question to answer. It's like asking what is truth? What is justice? What is beauty? Something like that. It's been extremely fun. I've got to talk with some of the smartest people in the world, travel the world. I've been recognized all over the world now for doing this. And it's just been a wild ride. So we're three years in and helping spread the Bitcoin awareness. So life is good. Let's start there. Let's start right where, what is money? Because it's an interesting question. I've got in front of me a few economics books, the Bitcoin Standard as well. It's a really interesting read, just the Bitcoin Standard, because of course, if you don't know what you're getting into when you pick up the book, you have no idea, number one, how ignorant you are, and number two, how much time is needed to explain how we got here, what money really is, how it's been manipulated, how little you truly understand about it. I feel like it might even be like seven or eight chapters before he truly gets to, okay, so by the way, Bitcoin, because there's so much, you got to do through so much. So can we start with what is money? Yeah. So I'll first echo what you're saying there. So the Bitcoin Standard is an absolutely fantastic book. It's probably the first book you should read if you're getting into Bitcoin. I was very fortunate to have read it the weekend it came out in April 2018. I was still kind of in the crypto jungle. And then I Basically, after reading that book, I became what most people would call a Bitcoin maximalist. Just read that book. I'll just leave it at that. So the question, what is money? Like, as you said, in that book, he goes, probably the first two thirds of the book are monetary history, nature of money, economics, et cetera, before he even introduces the concept of Bitcoin. That's kind of parallel to the intellectual journey. It's like, okay, you ask the question, what is Bitcoin? Although the next natural question, the answer to that is, well, Bitcoin is money. You say, okay, well, what is money? And then boom, the freaking universe opens up. It's crazy. I've written, I've blogged about this. I've probably published over a dozen answers to that question that I've either gathered through my own research or picked up from guests on the podcast along the way. I have a document of future blogs that I intend to publish. I have probably over 50, five, zero answers to that question. So as you would imagine, 
as being the host of the What Is Money show, I often get asked this question, but I never know which way to take it because there's just so many paths to walk across this field. And so I'm going to go with one that I've been thinking about and talking about more recently. And this is in the wake of me reading another really important book, which is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, written in 1957, probably the most brilliant novel I've ever read. It's a very enjoyable piece of literary fiction, but it is infused with deep philosophical and libertarian principles. You will learn exactly what's going on in the world today once you get done with this book. It's a very big book. It's a 64-hour audiobook. I think it's 13, 1400 pages if you read it. Yeah, massive book. It goes to the bottom of everything. In that book, there is a speech called by one of the characters named Francisco Danconia. He gives a speech on money. And we put this on the channel recently. It's basically just me reading that excerpt from Atlas Shrugged. And then my editor put some animations over it and it went, it did well. It's like almost 300,000 views in a couple of months and just explaining the nature of money. So one of the points Rand writes in that excerpt is she says, money is the material shape of the principle that men of goodwill must deal with one another by trade. Another way she puts this is that it is a claim on the energy of those who produce the way I like to think about this is you could say every human interaction is a transaction. Now, not necessarily of goods and services, like we're not trading goods or services or money right now, but we are trading our time, energy, and attention, right? We're always transacting in it. Now, in order for you and I to have a good conversation, we have to assume something about one another. We both have to assume that the other person knows something that we may not right? That we have to be open to the arguments and the ideas that each of us present to one another and that they may bring us closer to truth, right? It may be something that brings us closer to truth. So we have to have this consensual openness between us. We both have to be willing to engage in dialogue. If I'm a know-it-all, right? If I'm just like, oh no, here's how the world works. I have totalized knowledge, which is a totalitarian mindset, then I'm never going to learn anything because I'm not open to learning. You would experience that as a very unenjoyable conversation. Like You'd probably be like, oh, that guy's a fucking know-it-all, right? Something like that, which I have been accused of, but I'm definitely not. So in the sphere of economics, there is this principle of a similar principle of consent. We only trade because we value things differently. So when you and I sit down to negotiate a trade and you're going to give me $100 for a chair, we only trade because I value the $100 more than I value the chair and you do the reverse. You value the chair more than you value the $100. But so long as we negotiate and execute that trade based on mutual consent, that we've both consented to the trade, then we both leave the trade believing that we are better off. How does Ayn Rand define value? She says, value is that which man acts to gain or keep. So if we've both left a trade better off, then we have created new value, right? You have a more valuable life with the chair. I have a more valuable life with the $100. Now, of course, this isn't a financial profit. This is a psychological profit, right? It could be the case that the chair doesn't work or the $100 gets inflated or whatever, but we at least leave the trade believing on our own merits, on our own perception and perspectives that we are better off. So the point here is that consent, mutual consent, bilateral consent in every exchange is necessary for the creation of value. Now, if instead we assume that 
coercion is a component of an exchange, then you are actually destroying value or at least leaving value neutral because the coerced party, the person with the proverbial gun pointed at them, would not engage in the trade. When a coerced person willingly gives you their wallet, right? Someone gets mugged in an alley. Hey, your wallet or your life. The coerced party or the victim is saying, I value my life more than my wallet. Here you go. Now the coerced party hasn't gained any value. Obviously they've lost value, right? Because they had their life before they have their life after, but they've had their life minus their wallet. The coercing party has then gained value at the expense of the coerced party, right? They have used the threat of violence to extract or expropriate wealth. So in any transaction that includes coercion, you have at best value neutral or at worst value destructive behavior. Money is this thing, like the value of money, the purchasing power of money is something that accrues and accretes as we engage in consensual trade with one another over time. The more consensual trade we engage in, the more capital we create, the more goods we create, the richer we become. And then that money, as Ayn Rand says, is a claim on the products of those efforts, right? So the efforts of producers. Another kind of answer to the question is money becomes an emblem or a tool for trading human time, right? We know the old adage, time is money, but we can also flip it and say money is time, right? They're very, very closely correlated. And this isn't somewhat intuitively obvious. Most of us, most people in the world go to work and they trade their time for money, right? That is a wage. And then you take that money out into the marketplace and you trade that money for the time of others, right? The guy that cooks your meal, the guy that makes your shoes, whatever it may be. So we are literally trading our time with one another through the medium of money. This allows us to do something interesting, which is economic specialization, that we can each focus on one thing and be really good at it. We can then trade with other specialists through money, and then we all get to enjoy the best fruits of one another's labor. It's this ultimate tool for human cooperation and scaling what the economists call the division of labor, which is basically we're, we're actually creating more utility of our time through cooperation than we do working in isolation. Those are a couple of paths to go down to define money. I would definitely encourage people to check out that either the video we did on Francisco's money speech, or you can Google Atlas Shrugged Money Speech and just read it. It's five pages. I've been exploring the nature of money since I read The Creature from Jekyll Island in 2005, so almost 20 years. This is the best description of money I have ever read or listened to. It's simply phenomenal, and I highly encourage everyone to check it out. And what I found so interesting about all of that and in, in going down that journey, I've had my own search to try to understand. It always leads me back to a few things within our society. Number one, the ineptitude of the education system in which it doesn't help anyone understand anything remotely, not just on what is money. I understand the philosophical component of that and how tough that is to try and cram into a high schooler's head or let alone someone in, in an undergraduate. But the inability to manage and do the functional things with money from investing to understanding taxes of which you have... I don't remember if that word was ever even mentioned in my high school. And I went to pre-high school. Like, I don't know if that's ever mentioned, but that seems to be a pretty significant thing separating certain people in society, let's just say. Not to go down that route, but one thing that was unique about all that I had studied 
was this understanding of money as energy. And when you really get that in, it can help to change the way you structure your day, you structure strategies for the next five years, 10 years for your life. And you're not going to slug away doing this thing, trying to trade your... It just doesn't make sense. The more people we can get to understand that, the more quickly they can find that they might be in a system that's not really set up for you or how to at least manage this better than just being a cog in the wheel. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. What I want to discuss now is one of the other parts of Bitcoin Standard had a discussion, if I'm remembering right, about inflation. I might be mixing some of my other books, but the American populace, truly the masses, let's say, the general populace, doesn't have a good understanding of inflation of what it means, right? And I think you'd spoken on this, or I know Michael Saylor does also. People in Argentina are well aware. My dad's from Nigeria, well aware of what happens. Many societies in many places, not just in the third world countries, are aware of what happens. Could you maybe for people who don't have a good grasp of what's going on with inflation and why it's constantly in their faces now and what's supposed to happen and are we in a recession and what's going on? Just give us a current understanding of maybe what that is and what that means for us right now in our world. First of all, I will decompose the term because it is a point of much confusion. The term inflation is used to refer to two things, actually. One is price inflation, which is what most of us conceive of it as, right? The prices of goods and services going up. And the second one, which is actually the cause of the first one, is monetary inflation. This is the arbitrary expansion of the money supply. So when you 
print, you have more dollars chasing the same level of goods and services that cause causes the prices of goods and services expressed in dollars to go up. So it's monetary inflation or the printing of money that causes price inflation. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, right? It's like there's a certain amount of dollars in circulation. The steak costs $20 a pound. They double the money supply. Well, over time, the steak's going to cost $40 a pound, right? Basically, that's it. Question is, why? Why are they printing money if prices are going up? That doesn't seem to be a good thing because you want the prices of the things you consume to go down. But the pernicious problem here is that we also want the prices of the things we own to go up. So you want the price of your house to go up, your equities portfolio, et cetera. So I think central banks have managed to use this confusion to hypnotize people into believing that it is necessary and healthy for an economy for prices to always go up. But what this actually is, is a regressive tax on the poor. So if you own, if the predominance of your portfolio is in assets, right? Real estate, equities, things that can't be printed. When money is printed, the value of your portfolio will tend to go up. If most of your portfolio is dollars or you're living in paycheck to paycheck or fixed income, the prices of all the things you consume is going up, but not the prices of the things you own because you don't really own much or anything, right? So we're talking about inflation is a tax on the poor that benefits the rich. Like this is a core reason why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So what does that mean? Like, what is that? Okay, we're printing money. We're stealing from the poor. We're giving to the rich. Who's printing the money? The answer is the central bank right? We don't have a free market in the market for money, right? And this is even in the West. This is in the United States where we pride ourselves as free market capitalists. The sovereignty of the individual is superordinate to the sovereignty of the state and life, liberty, property, all of these things. We don't have that in the largest and most important market in the world, which is the market for money. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what is the central bank? And this is where I would highly recommend people read the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's also a free audiobook on YouTube. You can listen to it. It's an abridged version. I think it's maybe just five or six hours, but it goes through the inception of the Federal Reserve, the nature of money, the history of central banking. It's like the Bitcoin standard will totally blow your mind and open your eyes to what central banking really is. Central banking is a coordinated currency counterfeiting cartel. The same thing that if you or I counterfeit a US dollar bill, we go to jail. That is the exact mechanically the same activity that the Federal Reserve does by the trillion. So when you hear these terms like quantitative easing or raising the debt ceiling or blah, 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 euphemism, A, B, C, D, it's all this. It's, it's monetary inflation. They're arbitrarily expanding the money supply. They give the money out to those politically favored insiders that can get it first, typically statist bureaucrats, people close to the government, basically. And then as that money enters wider circulation, the productive population pays for it in the form of price increases. So this is a transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich, basically. And so to, to put all this in one nutshell that people really like, because it's easy to remember, I think, inflation is legal counterfeiting. 
Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. There's absolutely zero economic distinction between these two activities. There's only a legal one. And so what does that mean? Inflation is theft. Inflation is the stealing of purchasing power from savers. If I'm saving in dollars that I can't print and I must work for, but there's an institution called a central bank that can produce new dollars without performing any work, they can steal the fruits of my labor by debasing my savings technology or my currency. This is a massive, massive problem, right? This is exacerbating the gap between rich and poor. This supercharges political polarization, right? Because you have people getting victimized in this scheme that are voting for more extreme candidates to try and fix the thing, not understanding how the game is played. And you have the super rich also voting the other way, trying to prevent their wealth from being redistributed. And so you get this political polarization, which we've seen since 1971 and going off the gold standard. And again, back to the Ayn Rand point, this is not consensual, right? This is theft. This is non-consensual exchange. The central bank can only exist through the existence of a legal monopoly, which means they have to violently shut down any competitor, any business that wants to get in the banking game, the central banking game or the currency production game, they will be shut down by the state. And this has happened. You could check out the history of eGold. There were some other projects in the 90s, like they created a version of digital cash, but it was centralized. The government would come and shut it down. And this is also the miracle of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is decentralized. So although it is a competitor to central banks, it can't be shut down. And that's the magic of it. So what does this mean? Like, I want to take this back to the RAND points since that's where we started. And I'll read an excerpt from Atlas Shrugged here. She says, in a moral society, these are the criminals and the statutes are written to protect you against them. But when a society establishes criminals by right and looters by law, men who use force to seize the wealth of disarmed victims, then money becomes its creator's avenger. Such looters believe it is safe to rob defenseless men once they've passed a law to disarm them but their loot becomes the magnet for other looters who get it from them as they got it. Then the race goes not to the ablest at production, but to those most ruthless at brutality. When force is the standard, the murderer wins over the pickpocket, and then that society vanishes in a spread of ruins and slaughter. When we look at the history of money printing, it disintegrates society. It dissolves social cooperation. If you want to induce chaos, just hyperinflate the currency. There were periods in Venezuela where banknotes were clogging the gutters because they were worthless, right? Paper and banknotes. People are eating their pets because the supply chains are broken because the money doesn't work. It's a guaranteed way to induce a mass psychosis or total social disintegration is by breaking the money. So we take steps along that path when we enshrine criminals by right and looters by law, which effectively central banks are. It's the largest organized crime syndicate in the history of the human race in terms of time, energy, and purchasing power stolen. It's a bitter thing. It's not fun to look at, perhaps hard to believe when we think we're living in such an advanced civilized world. But I think it's also somewhat obvious in a way, right? Look around you, right? People are always trying to take the shortcut. People are always trying to get something for nothing. If there's a group of people that can monopolize money and literally print money, that is their business, printing money. It's a 100% profit margin business. Printing 
money. You can buy anything. The only cost is the preservation of that monopoly, which takes the threat of force, basically. So you need the guns, you need the army, you need coercion and violence to preserve the monopoly. It's really bad, really, really bad for the world, at least. What's crazy about this is, was it Andrew Jackson that had the crazy fight for the central bank? Which is insane, because where I'm going with this is the fact that if you study this, if you start looking into it, you start to see that people have realized this over the course of history and America's short history. And there have been people and groups and men who have fought back for small periods of time, won, and eventually lost out and, and to the point of where we're at today. And you say that for some people like this might be hard to believe, but I think nothing is ever more difficult to believe than fractional reserve banking for most people, while you're, while you're saying. But fractional reserve banking doesn't make, like when you ask people, because there's plenty of videos, I've at least seen a couple where people are like, what happens to your money when you put it in the bank? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Nobody really knows. So maybe you can just touch on that real quick. And then we'll go deeper into to Bitcoin here. Yes. Yeah, so Andrew Jackson, I'm a Tennessee boy, so I really like Andrew Jackson because he's also Tennessean. He said something, uh, he was very outspoken against central bankers. And I guess it's first important to, to remember the American Revolution was a tax revolt, right? We were saying that was a taxation without representation. We didn't appreciate being robbed by England, right? Without having some commensurate services being rendered to us. It was also a revolt against the Bank of England, which was the central bank of England, right? So this country was founded on uh, resistance to central banking, basically. And the founding fathers wrote the constitution in a way that the states had the power to issue their own coinage and currency. And this was intended to prevent the implementation of a central bank because we had learned the dangers of the central bank from our time in England. It took three attempts to get a central bank to go through. And that's what Andrew Jackson was fighting against. I think it was the second attempt. And he, he literally said, I will rout you out, you den of vipers. He punched one of the central bankers in the face. Like This is like a really raw, serious matter, right? This is back when I guess presidents had balls. We fought it, we resisted it, but again, it ended up getting snuck in the back door. And that's where I'd point people to the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It was a total scam, totally slid in the back door, done under secrecy, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a big rabbit hole to go into. To talk about fractional reserve banking, I'm going to tie this into the nature of money, and this will help explain hopefully why Bitcoin's really important next. One of the ways to define money is as a tool for moving value across time and space. We've tried many different tools for the job across history. We've used salt, we've used cattle, we've used glass beads, we've used women, we've used IOUs, seashells. Like it's, we've had myriad experiments. And through all that experimentation, we basically arrived at gold being the best tool for the job. Core to the reason why gold is best is because if money is a tool for moving value across space and time, gold was the best tool for moving value across time. As I described earlier about central banking, when you counterfeit currency, you're debasing the value of the currency unit. So that means it's not holding value across time. Gold is like the opposite of a debasable currency. It is the commodity with a supply that is most difficult to expand. So when we look at gold historically, we see that its supply increases at an average of one and a half to 2% per year. So that no matter how much savings or purchasing power you put inside of gold, you're not going to get debased any more than one and a half to 2% per year. 
And if the economy is growing, say the economy is growing at 3%, 4%, well, then your savings should actually go up in purchasing power over time because it's going to be economic growth minus the debasement to give you your net purchasing power gain or loss. So gold was basically determined to be the best tool for the job in that respect. But the problem with gold, although it is somewhat good for moving value across space, right? We can mint it into coins. We can issue it in bars. It's still very expensive to move gold across long distances and also very risky, right? Because, well, gold can be seized. It's physical. To innovate around this technological shortcoming, we invented the gold-backed currency. So we would put all of the gold on deposit with a warehouse, which would later be called a bank. The warehouse would issue a paper receipt for the gold on deposit which would later be called a bank note. And then individuals could trade those pieces of paper as if they were as good as gold, because indeed they were redeemable for gold, right? At any time you could take the paper to the bank and get the gold. So this augmented gold in such a way that it was now, it was still an excellent tool for holding value across time because it has this inflexible supply, but because it was now in a paper derivative, or even later, we'd put it in electronic form, right? Like we have online banking today, for instance. You can move paper and electronic representations of gold really fast. So we've now solved the moving value across space problem. So that's great. We're done, right? We innovated gold by currency. We're done here. Good job, humans. But there's a problem. And the problem is humans. You cannot trust humans to safeguard the supply of gold and not over issue the paper claims on top of it. So if you think of this from an accounting perspective, looking through the eyes of the bank, the bank has assets, right? You've put gold on deposit with a bank that's on the asset side of their balance sheet. On the liability side, they have a matching offsetting liability, which are customer claims on the gold, right? Because customers put the gold on deposit with a bank and they have that paper certificate, the bank note that says, I can redeem this for gold at any time. So the bank has basically matching assets and liabilities, right? They have the gold on deposit and they have all the customer demand claims on that gold. So their assets and liabilities match. Those custodial banks would generate revenue by charging a fee for custody, essentially. But there's a giant financial incentive for those banks that customers want to leave their gold there. They don't come to redeem it all at once. So over time, these bankers, and if it's not the bankers that give into this financial incentive, it's the local government that says, look, there's all this money in this place. Let's go get us some of that action. They start to increase the number of liabilities, right? They start to issue more paper certificates redeemable for gold than the gold reserves can justify. So they start to increase the liability side of their balance sheet without increasing the asset side. This is what's called fractional reserve banking. Full reserve banking would be when the assets and liabilities match perfectly. So if all the customers can we get their gold at the same time, no problem. Bank has all the gold right there on demand. But a fractional reserve bank, say it's a 50% fractional reserve, they only have half of the gold necessary to satisfy customer demand deposits. This is the fraudulent insolvent business called fractional reserve banking. This is just like printing money, right? If you expand the number of liabilities outstanding, you can then take those into the market, sell them at full value, 
you realize full value on it. The value doesn't start to inflate away until it enters broader circulation. And so that's fractional reserve banking in a nutshell. And then that degenerates over time. You're basically engaging in counterfeiting, like we said earlier, because those liabilities that you have with no offsetting assets are just, they're fraudulent tokens, basically. They're shit coins, to use Bitcoin speak. So once you start engaging in that type of business, it degenerates over time, right? You start to run a larger and larger fractional reserve. We then get the phenomenon called the run on the bank, which if you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you're familiar with. This is when people go to the bank and try to get their money out, but the bank doesn't have enough assets because they've overissued the liabilities. Therefore, the insolvency is exposed, right? The fraud is exposed. This process repeats over time. The fractional reserve gets more and more extreme until you get to a zero reserve bank, which is fiat currency, right? And that's what in 1971, Nixon basically moved the world, moved the dollar off of the gold standard. And subsequent to World War II, all the global currencies were pegged to the dollar. So he basically moved the entire world onto this zero reserve fiat currency standard. This gives the Central Bank of the United States, the Fed, the ability to print money ad infinitum with no one can call the bluff. No one can redeem it for gold. What have we had since 1971? We've had global debt to GDP skyrocket. We've had business cycle get worse. We've also had weird socioeconomic things, right? Like addiction has gone up. The nuclear family has gone down. Productivity and wages have, have separated. Poverty's gone up. Homeless has gone up, et cetera, et cetera. And so on that topic, you could check out the website, WTFHappenedIn1971.com. When we break the money, we literally break the world. I guess this sets us up for Bitcoin, which where the mantra is fix the money, fix the world. It's insane that it's such a house of cards like that. And be- just for really briefly before we touch on Bitcoin, how is this not caved in? How are we lucky enough not to live in a world where it hasn't? Because once you start understanding this, and I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't know if you're a Bill Burr fan at all. If you ever seen him go off on it, you do. And this is, I think I probably saw that bit before I really truly did my quote unquote deep dive into this field. When you really start looking at it, you start going, wait a second, like it's got to happen. This is not fixed. It's not as stable as it appears. It appears perfectly fine. You can walk down, go to Times Square. Look, everything looks all good and everybody's happy. People are rich in America, right? And high middle class wages and blah, 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 blah. But then you really give a deep look at it. It's got to stop. So my only really quick question before all that is, when is this thing over, man? When is impossible to say. But if we look at the history of money printing, they all end the same way. These fiat currencies hyperinflate. And it's, it's, again, it's obvious. If you owned a money printing machine in your home, Basically, all of us would hit print on that machine until that thing was blowing smoke and sparks and broke. The same thing happens at the central banking level. They just print money until the currency collapses, right? And that's what's happened. I think the first experiment with paper money was in BC, China. I want to say it's like 300 BC. So we've tried paper money hundreds of times. When you give one group the power to print and you force everyone else to use it, it ends the same way that the currency hyperinflates. Or the country that's printing gets conquered by another one and it gets replaced by another currency. So when I have no idea, but I do think it happens, was it Mark Twain, I think, said about bankruptcy? He said, how does one go bankrupt? He said, gradually, then suddenly. And that tends to be what happens, right? You'll have printing for a long, long period of time. And then the prices start to go up faster and faster. And then it just goes parabolic. And in a matter of a couple of years, currency has gone. 
and it's very shocking to say the least. What's happening here though, is there's sort of like these two tectonic forces that are pushing against one another. On one hand, you have the printing of money, which again is you're stealing purchasing power from savers that have claims, the energy that savers have accumulated, right? The claims on goods and services that they hold in savings, liquid savings on one hand. And then you have that theft that's occurring of that. But then on the other hand, you have productivity. So as economic productivity expands, it actually extends the runway of the stealing, right? Because the purchasing power of money is being increased by productivity, even though it's being decreased by inflation. So it's a race between these two forces. And it's like, are we expanding technology and productivity faster or are we printing money faster? That tends to be how it goes. It's kind of weird because we want innovation. Innovation is a good thing. Obviously, it allows us to accomplish our aims with less efforts, basically. But as we expand productivity in a fiat currency paradigm, we're actually extending the runway or the expected life of the fiat currency. Like the hyperinflation gets delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation. That's why I can't tell you when. There's way too many variables. But we do know that when the tide goes out, as Buffett said, you find out who's swimming naked and there's nothing backing this currency. So it does collapse eventually. It's an insane thing. It's funny too, because it seemed like at least it used to be one of those pure conspiratorial ideas. And now with enough people and enough information out there and enough people able to educate themselves to be able to articulate it in this fashion, you can, you go, no, it's not. This is just how things are. This is what happens when you do this, this happens. And so that's pretty interesting. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, 
Payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove today to sign up. As far as Bitcoin is concerned, two things on that that I think would be interesting for people who are now aware of things and they're probably Googling and doing all this stuff while listening to this. Bitcoin as a solution to the problem that we are discussing, as well as since you already touched on gold and how it has served the human race over eons, why it's so different and why it matters. A tongue-in-cheek yet telling way to introduce this line of thinking is that if the internet and gold had a baby, that would be Bitcoin, basically. So we hit on earlier the problem with gold, right? So physical gold, difficult to produce, which means it's excellent for moving value across time, right? It's inflation resistant, right? Just like fiat currency is inflation vulnerable, right? It inflates very quickly. That's why it doesn't hold value across time. Gold is the opposite. So it's a good place to store purchasing power across time, but because it's physical, it's expensive and risky to move it across space. So we need to decentralize the custody of gold into bank vaults, issue a derivative instrument on top of it called a bank note or currency. And it was that gold backed currency that gave us the ability to move value across time and space in one tool, right? We gathered all the necessary properties of money into one tool, but we introduced the human element, the man in the middle attack, counterparty risk. You can't trust humans to maintain the peg between the paper and the gold, right? They overissue the paper, you get into fractional reserve banking and you end up in zero reserve fiat currency, basically. So it's my strong opinion that gold basically has failed as a medium of exchange because to scale gold as a medium of exchange, you need to centralize its custody. And if money is power, and as what Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. When you put that much power in one place, the institution that develops around it is the most corrupt institution in the world, which is the central bank. So gold doesn't work because it's physical, but it's almost like a paradox of money because it's like, we need a money that's physical so that it's persistent across time and is good for moving purchasing power across time. But we also need a money that's non-physical so we can transact it across space really easily. Thank God, gold and the internet had a baby and its name is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is basically dematerialized gold or digital gold or the internet of money, right? We're throwing all these analogies at this new thing to try and describe it, but it's just a radically new invention. Imagine if we had gold that was non-physical. So we had something with a very inflexible supply, but we don't need to put, because it's not physical, we don't need to centralize its custody and put a derivative banknote on top of it to make it portable, to make it transactable across space. What if we could just send the gold through the telephone wire or just send it over a radio wave or send it through the internet? You wouldn't need to centrally custody the gold because if you could send gold through radio wave, through the telephone wire, et cetera, that would imply that the gold has no mass right? Basically informational. It's digital, it's dematerialized. Very easy to custody something that has no mass, right? It's like storing a password. Obviously there's security that needs to go into this. This is, Bitcoin doesn't actually have passwords. They're called private keys. The private keys are the asset. So if you ever lose or forget the private key, you're done. There's no Bitcoin headquarters to call and get it back. You can't reset the password. It's like you buried the gold in the backyard and you forgot where you buried it kind of thing. It's gone. So there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it, but you get this ability to transact in a money that holds value over time very easily across space. So Bitcoin has optimized the solution 
of what money is intended to solve, which is to be an instrument for moving value across time and space. It's perfect for holding value across time because it is a fixed supply asset. Now we've never had this. It's not even possible to have a fixed supply physical asset because people can always produce more of anything that's physical, right? It's only possible with a decentralized digital asset that we can have something with a perfectly fixed supply. This is even gold, right? If we could flip a switch and everyone quits their current job and they become gold miners overnight, we would increase the supply of gold rapidly, right? You could do the same thing for Bitcoin, make everyone quit their job and sell everything and plug in Bitcoin miners tomorrow. The supply of Bitcoin would not change. It has this fixed algorithm. So it's a fixed supply asset that will only ever be 21 million. We know exactly when it is issued, how much it will be issued from now until the year 2140 at which point no more Bitcoin will be issued. So it is the perfect monetary technology for moving value across time because it has a perfectly inflexible supply, which is to say it's immune to inflation. There is 0% unexpected supply inflation. On the other hand, for moving value across space, again, it's dematerialized. It's pure information. You can move it at the speed of light and you can't get much faster than that. And because it's pure information, you don't need to centralize all its custody in one place. It's trivial to take self-custody for the asset. You also get these radically new ways to custody the asset called multi-sig or multi-key solution, where you don't need to hold the key yourself. You can chop the key into, say, five pieces. You have one to your wife, one to your accountant, one to your attorney, one to your brother, whoever's in your circle of trust, and you need three of five to unlock or five of seven or whatever. You choose the schema. So you get these very radical ways to custody the asset that are immune to coercion, right? You can't even be tortured, have your point taken if you custody it properly. So this is it, man. It's an unbelievable innovation. It's a fixed supply asset. It's almost like the invention of a pure money. Everything we've had prior to Bitcoin has been an approximation of money. And Bitcoin is, again, in terms of being a tool that moves value across time and space, it has perfected all the properties that we desire in money. There is still more work to be done. Like Bitcoin makes certain trade-offs at layer one. It's like to have a fixed supply of 21 million, for instance, a trade-off you make is there's not anonymity at layer one, there's pseudonymity. So you can see transactions on the blockchain. If you can associate an address with an individual, then you can trace their transactions. But there are things being built at layer two, like the Lightning Network, that increase transaction throughput and add additional privacy or anonymity. So I, I don't want to leave the audience with the impression that it's perfect as it is. There's still work to be done. But in general, Bitcoin is the perfect monetary base layer for humanity, right? We have a, a perfect instrument for moving value across time and space for the first time in human history. Yeah, and that's what it looks like. It looks like this is the setup if you were to ask me in my incredibly limited brain knowledge, it looks like this is the setup and this is where we're headed and that we're going to get this. If we do get this right, we could be off to a very unique few decades and centuries or whatever it is that we decide to do. Because with the most optimistic outlook, this would change virtually everything. It's like the history books will look like everything it did and then it will look like this happened. And then some crazy shit went on. So with our last couple minutes, you've already named a million books here. I'm a huge reader. Most everybody who listens or watches the podcast knows that I, I'm big into books and we're definitely going to be starting a kind of a book-related knowledge-based type thing. I know you're a reader. Anything Bitcoin-related, money-related, 
as well outside of it, maybe historically as well. You're incredibly eloquent as well. What are you reading? What would you recommend? Hard, hard question to answer. I would, okay. For anyone that is really far down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you might be listening to this. I think Bitcoin is Venice is the best Bitcoin rabbit hole book. It is uh, very deep, very difficult, but gets into the nooks and crannies of where this thing might go. Like, as you were saying, and many people have argued this, Bitcoin might be like the beginning of civilization, which sounds crazy, but we've always had these coercive political hierarchies necessary to scale civilization. We might not need them as much after Bitcoin. It changes the economics of violence. And like, I don't, it's, there's a whole thing here. We've talked about it for many episodes on the show, but that would be the deep Bitcoin rabbit hole book I'd recommend. We already talked about Atlas Shrugged. We talked about the Bitcoin standard. All right. So an easy book. Let me name an easy book for those that want to just get their head around the problems with money and the state. I would read, this is by Rothbard. It's a free PDF online. It's called What Has Government Done to Our Money? And he explains the problems with money. It's like a 25 page book. It's very short, very simple to the point. He's a great writer. He's also written another short book called The Anatomy of the State. Again, this is Murray Rothbard is the author. And he just describes the evils of statism. There's another great book by the late great Austrian economist, Gary North called Honest Money. He has an excellent writing style that's very short, punctuated, simple sentences, but he explains very deep topics. And in that book, he's explaining the nature of money and banking through a Judeo-Christian framework, the ethical and religious dimensions of money. There's another book on that as well called The Ethics of Money Production by Holzman. Excellent book. I'll name, <laughs> there's so many. I don't know where to enter. I'm going to throw you a curveball. This last one is, most people have heard of the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. It was one of the most popular philosophy books in the 20th century. Very few people know he wrote another book 15 years later titled Leela, An Inquiry into Morals. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's kind of a blend of his autobiography plus a philosophical treatise on metaphysics plus a fictional novel. And man, it's just really, really, really good. Just a wonderful philosophical book. Perfect. Listen, Robert, I know you got to go. We appreciate it. We will link to all those books right down below. And man, we'll have to do it longer next time or in person. Yes, I would love that. In person preferred. So you just let me know when and where. I'll be in Miami for the next several months. So happy to do it in person. Try and work it out, man. Appreciate it. Guys, we'll see you later. Thanks, Will.